chapter 27. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. I also want to welcome any who are visitors with us this morning. If you're a guest, uh, we're glad that you're here. We're glad that you found us and hope you feel at home here. Hope you feel the presence of the Lord with you. Um, We always welcome those who are new with us and and we're glad to have you. This morning, our text comes from Matthew 27, beginning in the 45th verse. We're going to read through the 50th verse. We are working our way through the seven last words of Christ on the cross. Let's listen to and let's read And hear God's word. It says, From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the whole land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest of the people said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. God bless our understanding, the reading of this, his word. Amen. In this fourth word from the cross, we are hearing the gospel at its deepest. Just hours before this, Jesus has been with his disciples and he has told them that every one of them will leave him and abandon him. But he says, yet I'm not alone for my Father is with me. Yet we hear Jesus cry from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is he alone? Has the Father left him? I think of the seven last words that Jesus spoke from the cross This one might be the most applicable to us because anyone who has lived by faith has surely felt this at some point. In the face of suffering or when we're hurting or when we see the suffering that comes upon others, we wonder why God seems to be absent. Why is this happening, God? Why this hurt, God? Why don't you seem to be responding? have to admit, I feel very over my head this morning with this text. What Jesus speaks from the cross just stretches my soul and my heart, my faith. C.S. Lewis said, there is a mystery here which even if I had the power, I might not have the courage to explore. G.K. Chesterton, the Christian philosopher said that in this cry of Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In this cry of Jesus, we hear something which we shall never understand in all eternity. And that in this cry, an abyss 
that is not for our thoughts has opened. Charles Spurgeon was the great preacher at the end of the 19th century of the, in the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England, very popular. And he said of this passage, here you may look as into a vast abyss. And though you strain your eyes and gaze till sight fails you, yet you perceive no bottom. It is measureless, unfathomable, inconceivable. We are in profound territory with this fourth word from the cross. We're told that darkness came over the land, the whole land. Now, 12 o'clock in the afternoon was not the time for the sky to be getting dark around Jerusalem. Jewish rabbis had taught that darkness is a sign that God is mourning. And now the father sees his son hanging on the cross. The last plague, do you remember the last plague before the night of Passover when the angel came through Egypt and took the life of the firstborn that did not have the blood of the lamb on the doorways, when other sons were sacrificed that night, hadn't the last plague been darkness? Wasn't that the last plague? And that darkness was a sign of God's curse, God's judgment upon the land. The Lord said through the prophet Amos, who had spoken of the day of the Lord centuries before, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make it like morning for an only sun. The sixth hour, noontime, was around the time each day when the lamb was sacrificed in the temple. The words on Jesus' lips, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, come from the first verse of Psalm 22. It is the first verse of Psalm 22. Matthew gives them to us as Jesus spoke them in Hebrew. At least... At least two, maybe three, of Jesus' final words on the cross come from the Psalms, which says something, I think, to us about the relationship between Jesus and Scripture. Jesus knew his Bible. Jesus went to the synagogue to learn God's Word. Perhaps his parents had taught him the Scriptures. Parents, I hope you are teaching and guiding your children in the Scriptures in the Word of God. It's great to know how to read music. And it is good to know how to kick a soccer ball and how to play games on the iPad. But knowing God's Word will be of immeasurable worth in every situation throughout life. Jesus didn't just learn the Scriptures as information. He learned them as prayer. It was something that got into Him. It flowed out of him even as he was in physical agony. And when he was at the end, the words of Scripture were on his lips. When we make God's Word a part of our lives, it comes to us. It comes to us in times of joy. It comes to us in times of sorrow because it's just in us. It sustains us in our victories. More importantly, it helps us in our cross moments, our own cross moments. It rises out of our darkness, even in our hardest experiences. I'm told that according to Jewish tradition, prayer in the Jewish tradition has 10 different names. And the first name of prayer in the Jewish tradition is cry. 
Jesus is praying and his prayer is a loud, agonizing cry. Why, God? Why, God, have you left me alone? Why, God, have you turned your back on me? Now, Jesus' cry of abandonment both exposes us and empowers us. It both exposes us, it also empowers us. It exposes, first of all, the idolatry that can be in us, that can be in us. Now, idolatry is worshiping something other than God, the one true God. We can easily make God into something that we want him to be, but that he really isn't. Idolatry can happen when we make God according to our ideas, according to our preferences. We have a hard time with Jesus' cry from the cross because our idea of God is that he is sovereign and all-powerful, which he is. But we take that to mean that he will make everything turn out all right for us and all our problems will be resolved because that's what God does. And when God doesn't work according to our expectations and it isn't working out all right, then we figure something must be wrong with God. When we think like that, aren't we molding God into our image? And that's where idolatry comes in. We say, you know, God is all-powerful, but then we use our own ideas about power and worship him as long as he fits into those particular ideas. We think, you know, if God were as kind and as loving and as compassionate as we are, we wouldn't let this be happening because if we were God, we wouldn't stand for this. I mean, we'd come through. If we were God, if we had God's power, we wouldn't be letting all this mess happen. Uh, We figure we can do a better job of being God than God can. To use the image of J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, everyone thinks they can wear the ring, right? Boy, if I only had the power. We've formed in our minds that God's power means rescue. Well, what if it doesn't? What if God's power can also mean restraint? You know, everyone was yelling at Jesus to save himself. If you're the son of God, then you save yourself. You fix this. You get yourself down off that cross. Did you ever think that maybe it took more power to stay there? Do you ever think that maybe it took more power for the Father not to rescue him, for Jesus not to come down off that cross? Be careful about worshiping the God who's supposed to fix things and is only powerful if it works for our benefit. Apparently, God has a very different idea of power than we have. I hear time and time again of the person who left the community of worship or or got angry at God, said they stopped believing because they were mad at God for not doing what God wanted them to do. And I don't want to minimize, I never want to make light of our pain or our struggles or our disappointment that we go through because that is real. But you know, the whole point of the Christian story is redemption out of weakness and a God who comes and suffers with us and for us. It's what Paul was getting at, I think, when he said that the cross was actually the power of God 
and how the foolishness of God is wiser than our wisdom and the strength of God is stronger than our strength. So our ideas about God, how he works, we get exposed sometimes. We get exposed. But Jesus' cry from the cross also empowers us. It empowers us too. It empowers us to question, to take our deepest struggles and most heart-wrenching needs to God. I mean, are we surprised that one of Jesus' last final words, and in Matthew's gospel, it is the last word. It's the only word he gives us from the cross. Are we surprised that Jesus' last word is a question? I mean, maybe we'd think it should be some great triumphant cry. Maybe we would, if we were writing the story, we would have Jesus saying, victory to God. Or, I love you, Father. Or maybe we would have Jesus shouting out something from another of the great Psalms. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. He dies. Or, I fear no evil, you are with me. Does it strike us that in his darkest moment, Jesus doesn't quote Psalm 23 at all? He quotes Psalm 22. Maybe we need to learn that psalm too. Parents, teacher, children, the 23rd psalm. Teach them the 22nd psalm too. God, why have you forsaken me? And perhaps you've been told or you've thought, you know, but it's wrong to question God. Or you've been told that doubt is bad. It shows a lack of faith. Hey, who are we kidding? Who are we kidding? Don't we ask God why all the time? Why my divorce? Why this illness? Why this tragedy? Why do I continue to struggle with this? Why, God? Why? And that's even... That even the Son of God, I think, questions the Father, tells us and gives us permission. It's okay. It's okay to bring our questions to God. Questions aren't wrong. Many other places in the Bible, we see and hear people questioning God as to His presence, as to His caring, as to His purposes. I mean, just read the Psalms, full of questions to God, taking God on. Read Job, uh, Joshua, Moses, Gideon, Jeremiah. They all complain. They all bring their cries to God. No one lives the life of faith. No one ever lives the life of faith without questioning God. If you don't wonder at some point, you're not living by faith. Asking questions doesn't mean we've lost faith. By asking God about God's absence, by asking God why, Jesus teaches us about faith. Because part of faith is calling on God when our experience leads us to think that God is not there. Faith is believing in God even when we don't feel Him. Dale Bruner has said that in seeing Jesus on the cross, asking our questions, we see how Jesus fully took on our humanity. He not only took on our flesh and our blood, He took on our nervous systems too. He came not only giving us answers, he came asking our questions. It would have seemed stronger for Jesus to die with an exclamation, true. Questions seem weaker 
and exclamations. But Jesus has been redefining strength his whole life. And how can questioning, how can wondering be faith? Because Jesus' question is directed to the Father. My God. My God. My God. It's exactly to God that our doubts, that our questions, that our struggle with understanding should be directed. It's, no long, it's, it's when we no longer look to God, I think, that faith is lost. If we're going to complain, complain to God. You're going to get mad, get mad at God. You're going to hold someone responsible, hold God responsible. Because he's big enough. The son will not let go of God. My God, my God. You know, Jesus doesn't pray for rescue, does he? He never prays for rescue. He cries, he prays for his father's presence. He wants to know why the father isn't there or at least doesn't seem to be there. Are you there, God? Because I don't feel you. I don't sense you. I feel lonely. I feel abandoned. Theologians and Bible readers have always wondered and debated whether the father actually left Jesus or did Jesus just feel like the father actually left him? Again, we're in deep territory. That's a big question. As Jesus cries out that he's forsaken, abandoned, divorced from God, rejected, deserted, left. And his entire life has been one of communion with the Father. When Joseph and Mary went back to the temple to find the boy Jesus, there he was, talking to the priests and the, the scribes, and he said, I must be about my Father's business. And twice... The Father spoke from heaven. We read in the Scriptures, a voice came from heaven. This is my Son, the one I love. With Him I'm well pleased. And He spoke and He preached and taught in the authority of the Father. And He did miracles and He healed. It looks like just one big relation. He says, I, I and the Father are one. It looks like just one big life of communion with God. And now has that communion been broken? Did the Father leave Him? I tend to come down on the side that Jesus isn't just expressing feelings alone. I'm very wary of trying to psychologize Jesus. I take his words as they are. He's expressing reality. The Father did forsake him. And this had to happen. It had to happen. Here's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Father made Jesus to be considered and treated like one who was wrong and sinful, though Christ never did anything. God treated our sin and wrong as if it belonged to Christ. Christ became our substitute. What you and I deserved, he got. Jesus received the blame, received our sentence. Paul writes this in Galatians. Christ redeemed us from that self-defeating, 
cursed life by absorbing it completely into himself. Do you remember the scripture that says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree? That is what happened when Jesus was nailed to the cross. He became a curse. And at the same time, dissolved the curse. John Stott, Bible teacher and theologian, said that when Jesus cried out as if deserted by God, it was as if God's eye blinked just for a moment. It was as if for that one small moment, the communion between the Son and the Father was broken. God's eye blinked on him. The father blinked because someone had to pay the price of sin, which breaks communion with God. Someone had to be separated from God. God could have blinked on us, but instead he blinked on his son. And because of that, we are reconciled to God. We have peace with God. We are the forgiven, the redeemed, sons and daughters of God. We are spared because God refuses to have us lost. He refuses. This is the gospel at its deepest. When Charles Spurgeon said to his church that when we hear this cry, these words of Jesus from the cross, that we are looking into a vast abyss, that it is measureless, unfathomable, and inconceivable, he also told them this. This anguish of the Savior, on your behalf and mine, it is no more to be measured and weighed than the sin which needed it or the love which endured it. Immeasurable. Let's prepare ourselves to come to the table which is made possible because of that love.